0: reads, was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jewish Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from rubbish, heap, charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall could collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do it not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked your anger, to anger here in front of the builders. At last, the wall was completed to half its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sambal, the Tobiah, and the Arabs, Ammonites, the Ashadites, heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and to throw us into confusion, but we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard, but families... My families and armed with swords, spears, and bows. Then, as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, Don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious. And fight with your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half. My men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting the load and on the other one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter stayed with me to sound the alarm. Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. When you hear the blast of the trumpet rush to wherever it's sounding, then our God will fight for us. We worked early and late from sunrise to sunset and half the men were always on guard. I also told everyone living outside of the walls to stay in Jerusalem. That way they and their servants could help with guard duty at night and work during the day. During this time, none of us, not I nor my relatives, nor my servants, nor the guards who were with me ever took off our clothes. We carried our weapons with us at all times, even when we went for water. Let's pray, God. Thank you for your word and this opportunity to come before you and worship you in song and fellowship. And now in your word, Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us and helps us understand the scripture, Lord. Thank you for scriptures like this that challenge us when we face trials. As we see Nehemiah and the other Israelites, Lord, and with that said, I know that each and every one of us face different trials, Lord, and as we prayed as a worship team earlier this morning, we prayed that the fight is Saturday night and Sunday morning and all the nights and all the mornings, Lord. So, Lord, will you use me as you see fit? Whatever you want me to say, I say whatever you don't. I don't. Prepare our hearts to receive your word. We love you. In Christ's name, amen. You may have a seat. So, if you notice halfway through it said when the wall was 50% done and we'll go through this and we'll walk through it and I think I mentioned this several weeks ago that um, Ezra and Nehemiah do not flow in a linear way and here again we see this Nehemiah there's there's an attack and prayer an attack and prayer but it all is coming together but when I was going through this for the first time, what stood out to me is 50% done. When the wall was 50% done, and then on one of my mini rabbit trails, I started looking at how many people have felled at 50%. And I could not find it because there was so many different situations and what qualified for 50%, so I practically wasted 72 hours of my life. At 50% done, I quit. No, I'm just kidding. But really, if you consider it, some of, the, some of the terms that we use even today point us back to 50% done or midlife crisis, midlife, 50% when you have to go buy a car. As a matter of fact, you should. 50% done in marriages, the seven-year itch, the 14-year gap, and 21 and on and on and on. But 50% done in, most people at the 50% uh, workload of rebuilding their homes is when they want to quit. When you're restoring a vehicle at the 50% mark is when you think, is it worth it? Even with Christians, Barna was going through a poll and was discussing that the time that you leave a church, if you add up all of the years that you've attended a church, You will find that when you leave, it's probably at the 50% mark. I don't know how they measure that, but Barna knows how to do it. But 50%, 50%. And and for some who who more are on the positive things that look at the glass half full, think, well, 50% is a great mark to hit. Like, come on. It's all downhill from here. And then I know that there are some of you that when you hit the 50% mark, you're like, Man, I'm pretty sure it's going to take 75% more effort than I'm willing to give. But if you consider it, if you just consider the 50% mark, think about your life, think about different situations, think about your job, projects, think about your children at the nine and 10 year mark of their life, about halfway when they're still under your responsibility. Isn't that when you want to get rid of them? Sorry. Sorry. I love you, don't leave. <coughs> my 10-year-old's over there, so she won't know. Yeah. But if you think about it, then, but then, then you get sentimental. That's what I wrote down at the 50% mark. You get sentimental. You think, my children only have half of their growing up years left. And then you start thinking, oh, I have so much more to teach them. You think about your job. When you set out, You're going to work at this company, say, for 30 years, and you're at the 15-year mark, and you wish you were retired. And over and over again, you see at the 50% mark, there's something to the attack. You just don't want to do it. I I could spend the rest of the morning talking about 50%, but I think that you get the point. So if you consider that, as as I do just a quick background, just to consider where we left off at. A couple of weeks ago, where we left off at, if you remember that Nehemiah had organized all the people group to start rebuilding the wall. Even for some people, four people in their own yards, they were building the wall. We talked about the goldsmiths to the perfume makers, all the way to the priest, and everyone was involved. We also discussed the gates that were built, and the gates are supposed to be the filters, not just to block everybody out and leave them out, But also to filter through what comes in and out. And ultimately, we build walls around things that are important to us. But we need gates to filter what comes in and out. Who here, if you're honest, wish that they had a better filter of their mouth? I do. But then you start to realize that I wish I had a better filter of what comes into my heart. Then you go down that whole rabbit trail and think, oh, man, what am I watching? What am I reading? i got to stop watching the news. Monday night is the only time I can watch it or it's going to ruin the rest of my week. But as we left off, Nehemiah had organized all these people, and that's that's a great situation. The walls are finally being built after 100 years of the Israelites moving in after captivity. If you remember, he was stirred in the heart. He was heartbroken. He had never been to Jerusalem before. He heard from his brother that the walls were burnt down and God stirred his heart. And really this whole theme is rebuilding hope. And first we are being called to Christ in hope. And then called to live a life for him. And then called to serve him. And now we're at the point, the 50% mark. And a side note here that I wrote down is, I've noticed, even for me, about halfway through any series, I'm already over it, and I want to move on to something else. Maybe you, too. Maybe you are hoping we were done at Ezra. We still have a couple more months hanging there. But you see that, that the 50% mark in here, anytime time that we see the Israelites start to come back to Christ, start to serve the Lord, come back and, and surrender their life to Christ, then the attacks come. It's not hard for me to convince you that it's difficult to be a Christian. I think it's a disservice if we lie to a new believer saying, now that you know Christ, life will be great. Yes and no. It'll be great in the Lord, but it's hard. It's hard work. God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to cruise, set cruise control into glory. And sometimes I wish that was the case. But then I would get bored about the 50% mark of my cruise and want to do something different. So just for reference, I, we, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that there are some bad guys that you're going to start to dislike. Excuse me, this is annoying me. and I, I'm easily distracted. So, <clears throat> And now you'll be looking at my feet for the rest of the time. But... Just, if you just jump to verse 7 here real quick. Let's go to verse 7 here real quick. I just want to drop down. And a couple of weeks ago we talked about, um, I mentioned that Zambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and Ashrodites are going to be people that you don't like. They're really annoying. And, and, and so here's a map here that we have that I just wanted to show you. So these are the locations of of the people. And and really why I brought this map up and added just in the purple and the blue is just these are the same people that the Israelites, the the Jewish people are fighting today. Isn't it interesting that the same enemy way back before Christ or the same enemy that are fighting the Jews today, Sembalat, he's the one, if you look, he's from the Western Bank. Gaza, I don't have to talk about the Gaza Strip too much maybe, but they're still fighting. Tobiah, Tobiah is actually a part of Jordan and part of Saudi Arabia. The Ammonites, or the Ammonites that you can see here on the, all from Jordan and the Palestinians, those are now the Muslims in Palestine. These are just the same people that Jewish people are fighting. And all that to say, do you notice that you tend to fight the same battle, the same things, the same situation, over and over and over again? It's almost as if God has this this ability to come to us, to rescue us, and to let us know, hey, it's going to be hard. But the whole reason it's going to be hard is because I want you to depend on me and not in your own strength. I want you to come to me. You know whenever you get a little proud and you start being successful and then you start thinking it's about you? But what I've realized is that more and more that the way that Satan attacks is very specific to the way that I'm wired. It's almost like he has this super bullet that knows exactly my DNA sequence and knows exactly where to shoot it. Every time. I have a list here of the five different ways that the Israelites were attacked. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that these are probably some of the ways that you are attacked. So as we go through this, just consider, and this is not an exhaustive list at all by the way that the enemy attacks us, but if you're willing, go ahead and just highlight or circle one that you know, yep, that one gets me. And I'll do the same for you. So the attack, so they're doing really good work. After 100 years, Nehemiah has, has come in now. They're rebuilding the wall. Finally, we're rebuilding the wall. Finally, it's an opportunity. And then all of a sudden, it's an attack. So the first question that I wrote down, well, if you're in God's will, why is it hard? That's the point. So let's take a look at some of the attacks. The first one is look at mockery, verse 2. Verse 2 says, saying this in front, so Sambat was very angry in verse 1, excuse me, when he learned that they were rebuilding the wall, he flew into rage and mocked the Jews. Sambot was was the governor of that area. He didn't want anything to do with the Jews. He thought that they were a laughing stock, but once they started building the wall, remember you build a wall around things that you want to protect. So the first thing he does is mockery. Verse 2, saying in front of his friends and the Samaritan army officer, what does this this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they are doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stone from rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Mockery. Making fun of them, they're poor. They're feeble, what are they doing? And part of the mockery is exaggerating. Do they really think they can build it in one day? Well, who said they were going to build it in one day? Have you noticed that, has there been times where you attempted to share your faith and then you were mocked for it? Or, or maybe, maybe you, you're not in junior high and high school anymore and it's not just like this Christian guy. But maybe it's in subtle ways. You send them something and they return it, no thanks. Thanks. They laugh at it. While I, while I was working for Kia, one guy, um, very endearing friend, he was from Great Britain and he called me a vicar. And if I lived in a vicary, don't worry, I'm not cussing. It was just a way of saying that I was a pastor, actually a priest, and a, or a vicarage was a parsonage. And it was a term of endearing, and he was a a Christian, but you know what happened is people who were not Christian started calling me the vicar, and it got annoying. Can you just call me Dallas or something else? Like, call me Austin or Tallahassee. Like, be clever. Come on. But it, it just kind of wore on you. It just kind of wears on you. just being made fun of. No one wants to be made fun of. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, they always hurt me as a matter of fact. So mockery. So the first thing, if you notice that it's a light attack, it's a volley of small arrows to your heart. That's what Satan does, just to see if he could just make fun of you. And that will lead you off course to what you were called to do. And then and if that doesn't work, then sarcastic remarks, and they're almost similar, but but look at verse three. To buy in the Ammonite, oh, side note, first of all, Sembala and Tobinai were enemies, but now they're buddies because no one likes the Jewish people. My, my, enemy, my, my enemy's enemy is now my new friend, so they're getting together. So as they're having this whole discussion, they're probably walking around watching the Jewish people build these walls. In verse three, after the mockery, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse even a fox walking along the top of it. If even a fox walked along. Sarcastic remark. An over-exaggeration of the situation. But really, if, you, if you're comfortable with highlighting in your Bible, fox, and I'll give you some homework. Just do a Google Word search and the word fox in the Bible and you know what you will come up with. You will see that Jesus calls Herod. You go tell that fox in Matthew and Luke. You see in the Song of Solomon that when the the husband and wife who are madly in love and they do a metaphor saying, let's not allow the fox to run into our vineyards during harvest. You'll see in Ezekiel when false prophets come, they call them the, the work of the fox. The fox is a sneaky character, but it's often overlooked. And if you go down further on that rabbit trail, that you will see that there were false gods, the gods of foxes, and they were gods that wore masks because they weren't who they really were. And if you continue to go down this rabbit hole or fox trail, if you will, you will see that what happens is what Tobiah actually mentioned is actually a stab saying the smallest critique could bring down that Christian. The smallest attack, the one that's ignored. Now if you consider this a little bit more, if walls and gates are important to protect what's important, if you see this giant grizzly bear coming, you'll probably close the gate or shoot it or whatever. But if a fox, ah, that's just a fox. The cute and cuddly, the clever fox, I don't want nothing to do with it. I'll shoot away, but I won't deal with it small compromises in your walk with the Lord is the foxes in the vineyard. It's the ones that you say, we'll deal with it later. Has anyone ever said that you'll deal with it later and then you deal with it when the fox turns into an elephant? I think perhaps the most famous one is when your check engine light comes on and you say, hey, it's still driving pretty good. Then you may even check the code. It's only a misfire cylinder one. Three weeks later, hey, cylinder one through eight are misfiring, and I need a new catalytic converter. But just that little warning light. And again, and we won't read it here, but in Ezekiel, as, he con- as the prophet continues to talk about how the false prophets are like foxes, he also mentions that we have to be prepared that the fox doesn't... Knock down our walls, what do you think he 's talking about he 's talking specifically to what Nehemiah is building, but he 's foreshadowing later on in the Christian walk because all of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, so Nehemiah is a smaller version of what Jesus is going to do Jesus come has come and saved us, and he 's taught us how to build the walls and the gates, and all of the heroes in the Old Testament that we have they are the smaller. Versions, the incomplete versions of what Jesus fulfills. So if you're keeping track, mockery and sarcastic remarks, but sarcastic remarks can have a hint of truth. Have you ever had a friend that made fun of you constantly and just said that they're just kidding? Just a little stab, maybe it's a brother or sister, and then all of a sudden you start realizing there's just a little truth to that, and then you have to confront them about it? That's the mockery and sarcastic remarks. The foxes. Number three, if that doesn't work, if Satan can't get you off course by just making fun of you, by just sarcastic remarks, by putting people in front of you uh, that makes fun of you and and drags you down, then intimidation and threats. Verse eight, drop down to verse eight. They all, all who was in that list and that map that I showed you, all, they all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. Intimidations and threats. The groups of people that don't even get along now are making fun of you. And their whole plan is to physically harm you, or attack you, or bring you down. Whenever I was in Israel in in 2019, whenever I went on the trip, uh, uh, Bethlehem was open. And it's not necessarily open, and you have to go through and... It's, it can be very intimidating with all of the guards there, and, and the day that we went was great, and we met someone who, who was Palestine, who was a Christian, and he had this whole mosaic uh, building, and what he would do is he would hire people with disabilities to create these mosaics, and then through that, he would lead them to Christ, and secretly on Saturdays, but then on Sunday so no one would notice, he would hold church in his warehouse, who knew that a couple of years later we would be having church in a warehouse? But what happened is the very next day, if we would have tried to go in, the very next day, the gates, the, everything was closed because there was an attack. But the attack wasn't with guns or knives. The attack was someone called the gas station and said, I smell gas at this mosaic building. Shut them down. So if if Satan can't beat us with mockery and sarcastic remarks and intimidation and threats, these guys were so upset, they made plans to fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion, attacks, intimidated. You'll be fired if you hang that poster of that scripture up on your wall. You can pray, but don't say in Jesus' name when you say amen. Amen. I was told that at a city council meeting once, and I said, well, I guess I can't pray. I said, okay, well, don't leave because we don't have anyone else to pray, but if you you have to say in Jesus' name, then you say, I say in Jesus' name. So since I tend to be a little snarky sometimes, I said, and I pray, and whoever else is in here with Jesus' name, I haven't been back since, but, like those, those intimidations. And you know, when you're sitting down and someone stands over top of you to talk to, have that upper position? When your boss calls you into the office and asks you to have a seat and then they stand up? Intimidation and threats. Because if we're still in the fight, then we got a threat. And this is here, if, if discussing what Satan does in, in my DNA, how he attacks. So I'm, I'm halfway okay with being threatened or made fun of and sarcastic remarks, but I'm not okay if I feel like it's coming into my home, if it's towards my family. Then all of a sudden, then my mind starts running a million miles an hour, and then I start considering the worst case possible, the scenario that's worst case. And then those attacks. So, this is what was happening to Nehemiah when he was doing that. They all made a plan to come and fight against them. So, intimidation and threats. And number four, from verse 10, the first part of verse 10. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there's so much rubble to be moved. We will never be able to build this wall by ourselves. Discouragement and exhaustion. We're only halfway done and there's so much more to do. And I'm not complaining nor is Nehemiah writing that getting tired is a bad thing but complaining is. Having a critical spirit is not of God. The workers we're getting tired, and there's so much rubble to move. There's so much work to be done. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves, and that is the key. It has never been about themselves. It's always been in Christ's strength. So I would imagine, like any good human, they were feeling pretty good. Nehemiah is a good motivator, motion, motivating speaker, and he charges them up they get excited he gets a big prep rally he says you guys are going to do this and you guys are going to do this and you guys are going to do this and we're so excited and we can't do it and everyone's like freedom and they get and they run out and they're really excited to do it and they're willing to pay whatever it costs work as many hours as it is and they're running on adrenaline and then they see the walls halfway and then they look and then they're getting made fun of there's sarcastic remarks there's even intimidation and then we start complaining and they just start complaining, we'll never be able to build the wall by ourselves. Well, you never were building the wall by yourself. You just got pretty proud. And when they started talking about losing these, their strength, I believe that is at that moment they realize they weren't ever going to complete it in their own strength. And you may be sitting here and saying, well, of course, you've said it three times now. They're working for the Lord. Of course, they have to depend on God, and that's the same for us. Is we can't, we can't do it on our own. We get proud and think we can. We don't want to inconvenience other people, but I don't know about you. Well, actually, probably I do know this about you. But when I start to do things in my own strength, and I—that's when I get really tired. Not, not tired in the fact that I just need a good nap or I just need to sleep in a little bit more or I just need to have a day off or just a little small vacation. But, the, but being tired in the description of what this is called in the original language, it's to the point beyond exhaustion. If, if you're at that point where a good, good break, a good meal, a good chat, a good walk good morning of hockey. You should try it. Whatever it is, if that doesn't, if that doesn't help, a good run of devotional time, if that doesn't help, then, then I would suggest that you stop and take a look at what you've been trying to do in your own strength. God is so loving and so caring. He gives us this leash that makes sure that we don't get beyond ourselves too far. Because I'll put my head down and I'll put my nose to the ground and I'll keep working and all of a sudden there's nothing left. It's God's pulling and saying, hey, come back to me. And that's why. And that's when the complaining starts to take place. That's when you think, I need to come back to God. God loves us so much that in our 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 attacks and in these Hard situations, regardless of where you're at, it's it's the moment that he. These are the moments he uses to call us to him and saying, "Hey, I've been here the whole time. Why are you running out in front?" A couple of weeks ago, we were at uh, Avila Beach and I with Nally's family and we hung out with all eighteen nieces and nephews or whatever number we're on and it's great. They range from like newborn to thirteen. And what I re- one of the I'm such a bad uncle. One of my favorite things that I really like is watching like some of the younger nephews and nieces of mine that can walk okay, but not great. And they like to run in the wave, and they think like I got this. And then they get knocked down, and what's the first thing they do? Mama, and they run back, and then they hide behind mom, they hide behind dad, and they're like, Uncle Dallas is mean. He's laughing at us. And then they get brave again, then they run out just a little bit further and they jump over that wave and they're like, oh, I'm pretty good at this. And they go out a little bit further, jump over a bigger wave, oh, get knocked back, hey, I'm still on my feet. And then the third wave knocked them down. They get at mama and they run back. It's the same thing for us. We get proud, jump over the little wave, think we did it. The second wave, Uncle Dallas is laughing at us. It's no fun, the mockery. But if you think about this, this is the American culture work harder work smarter and harder we are self sufficient we don't need anyone this is an attack of ourselves and then he and then we get to the point where we run back and say mama or god and we come back and we say oh i'll never do that again and we do and then out of all of the attacks, number five is probably the one that that gets to me the most, that keeps me up at night, the ones that is hardest for me. I don't know which ones of these are hard for you, but this is probably the most difficult one. Negativity among themselves. Verses 10 and 12. Then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired. We read that. And there is so much rubble to be moved, and they're complaining. We will never be able to build the wall by ourselves. And then, if you drop down to 12, the Jews who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again they will come from all directions and attack us. Negativity among ourselves, the believers. Well, this isn't fun and this isn't good and this is awful and what's gonna happen and on and on and on. That just it, where's, That's the one that gets me down because I'm i the one that I want everyone to be on the team. I want everyone to participate. It's probably why I suffered so much as a youth pastor. I'd organize all these games and want all 101 kids to play and if two kids set out, I just stared at them and I loathe them. This is fun. You will like getting hit with dodgeballs. I promise. So I only worried about those two instead of what God was doing with the rest of them. Then the argument in my head is, well, God left the 99 for the one. Not in dodgeball. (laughs) Or they sit there and they pouted. I don't want to play. This is awful. This is blah, 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 blah. You can see how I feel about it. But negative. But you can even see that in your own life. How much do you complain? What things have you done halfway that you loved at the beginning and now you just are just bleh about it? I'm going to bring up COVID again. Remember when COVID hit and no one liked it, but you thought, oh, this will be a great time for family time. And then a week later, I hate my family. You know, it's just like, this is awful. This is bad. The negativity from the other people. I don't. I, I. don't want to jump out too far ahead without mentioning in verse twelve. If you'd look with me again, it says the Jewish who lived near the enemy came and told us again and again. And at first, the first read, I thought, oh, it's good. You need to have some spies near the enemy camp to figure out what's going on to report back. But the more that you look at it, and in an original language, it really should read the people who, um, the people who were endear to the enemy came to us again and again. The people who had, or I'll modernize it for us, the people who had one foot in the world and one foot in Christ were coming back. The reason why these Jewish people live near the enemy is because they were waiting to see which team won. It's the whole, who do you want to win the Super Bowl? Whichever team wins. So they, had, they, they were there. They weren't sure if the Jewish people, their own people were going to make it so they wanted to live close enough to the enemy because then they were like, yeah, I'll switch teams. And they came back and they complained again and again among themselves. The people who repeated what the enemy had said, the question I wrote down is, why were they close enough to know what the enemy was saying? Why are they now sharing What's going on? Why are they hanging out with the bullies? Why are they repeating it? Why when it got tough, they just stopped and complained? So this is the attack. To build a wall. To build the gates. But there's hope. There's hope. So let's take a look at the way that they respond. And we'll work our way back up in in very Nehemiah fashion. If we go back to verse 4, the first thing he did, respond... The the first way he responded was in prayer, verse four. Then I prayed, then I prayed, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. God, look, this is the situation and this is specifically how I am attacked. You know me, God. You know the way that Satan attacks me. This is very specific to me and I'm not doing well with it. And then he gets then he gets puffed up in a very old testament style. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, may they themselves become captives in the foreign land, do not ignore their guilt, do not blot out their sons, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. He is quoting what Isaiah said is going to come to those who mock Christ. But he prays. And something like this: God, I need you. I don't even know which way is up. I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, and actually I don't even know if what I have is a rope. It may not even be a thread. I'm at the end of it, and I'm trying to tie a knot because I read somewhere that you tie a knot at the end of your rope. And really I'm focused on me. And even if I'm at the end of this rope or the thread, I have to be reminded, God, that it belongs to you. I belong to you. I'm sorry that I sometimes act as if you, God, owe me something. You owe me for being faithful. What a joke. I'm actually dependent on you for that alone. And I'm a mess. And I already feel defeated. I'm only halfway through, and I don't want to go on anymore. I admit, Lord, that sometimes, most of the time, I want the easy road. I want to say I want the tough road in front of people, but deep down in my heart, when I lay down at night, I want the easy road, the cruise line. But I know that I need a hard road, so that way I will come and cling to you. I know you are a good God and you have saved me and you supply all of my needs and I'm sorry that I forget that. God, you fill the gaps of the relationships that are missing in my life. You make a way when there's no way. First, you did this by forgiving my sins. You have blessed me again and again and the last time I said I wouldn't forget and here I am again, but I'm coming to you. And here are the ways, O God, that you have blessed me. And then write them out. That is what prayer is. And that's what Nehemiah said. Prayer is not an exercise or simply motions of a good Christian. This prayer that Nehemiah prayed, this is coming from a place of recognition of Christ, his passion for us. And his desire for us to be more like him running into his arms. Oh God, we need you. Prayer is not simply an individual discipline, but a corporate one, a family one. We need you. We desperately need you. And look how Nehemiah is praying. The work is too big. The task is too hard. The people are tired. The enemies surround us. We thank you for that. Because you are using all of this to bring us back to you. Prayer is an act of total dependence upon the Lord. So prayer. Then the second part, apply your whole heart. After you pray, apply your whole heart. Even if you're back at 50%, apply your whole heart. Verse 16 and 17, look what he did. Or go back to 15 so we... Get context, but when our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. And now, all of your heart, but from then on, only half my men worked while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. The laborers carried on them, themselves or their work with one hand supporting their load and the other one holding a weapon. They applied their whole heart to the situation. Now at first you can look at this and think, wow, they actually dropped down to 50% efficiency. They had to use up half of their people to, to carry spears and knives and shields, and all while they had held onto a sword. Put your whole heart into the work of the Lord. But, side note, before you can put your whole heart into the Lord, It is important to remember your identity. I know I camp on this so much, but it's so important. But before we can apply ourselves wholeheartedly to the work of the Lord, we must know who is doing it. We must know who we are doing it for. How can you be all in if you're fighting who you are the whole time? Who is going all in? You the person who Christ made you. You are a Christian first. Everything else falls in line from that. Underneath all of the layers and responsibilities and the roles that you play, that you have at the very bottom in the pit of your belly, is where sin and grace wrestled and grace won. Grace was victorious. And we sometimes have to go back to that basement level We have to go to that original fight in us and see the victory in Christ in our life. Scripture talks about we sung cornerstone, but Scripture talks about, and again, we sung about a firm foundation, a cornerstone of Christ. It is right at that foundational level that Christ saved us. If we are applying our whole heart into the work of the Lord, it better be the heart that he gave us, the new one. But so many times, that old heart of ours comes back, and that's the one we offer. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a hero of mine in the early 1900s, he was a brilliant pastor, theologian, and served in wells. He grew up and he knew he wanted to be a doctor. So he went to medical school despite the fact that he was lower middle class, if you will. And I know it's perhaps a little different. It is different here in the U.S. We don't have that patriotic you know, system that they have in the U.K. But he went on and he graduated top of his class. He was a wonderful physician. He ended up working for a lord and that meant eventually if the lord died he probably since he had no children would have became a lord himself everything that you would want everything the american dream or the uk dream in this case but he felt called to become a pastor and as he was sharing that he felt called to be a pastor he was mocked he was ridiculed he was told by his family that they would cut off because of all the time he spent becoming this great doctor He didn't go to seminary, he didn't go to Bible college, but this man is the one who wrote so many of the messages, sermons that all of us use today to help craft ours. He even had a position to sit with the great G. Campbell Morgan, but the day before he was about to go, guess what happened? World War II. So he eventually makes his way to Wells, and he's ministering to the poor, and old fishing community there, and Martin Lloyd-Jones often, often talks about how discouraged he was. He said, when I, be, when I left being a doctor and became a pastor, I thought it would be easier. It was the hardest thing in my life, and I believed the lies of Satan for so many years as a young pastor, that I shouldn't be there, that I wasn't good enough. And then when he attacked me there, he would. if that didn't work, then he would attack me. You're too good for these people. Then the biggest one, he said, Satan would come to him at night and say, how do you even know you're a Christian? Martin Lloyd-Jones shares that for so long he fought that, and every day he fought if he really was a Christian. If he really should be a pastor, he didn't get to go to school. He didn't get to sit under G. Campbell Morgan. And he said, finally, the Lord... Told him this. Why would I rather talk about Jesus with the humblest fisherwoman in wells? And why would I love doing that better than talking to any of my peers about medicine? Why would God have brought me here? Because he loved me and he told me to. He said that The attacks never stop, but Satan stopped whispering, are you even a Christian? And he ends with this, because I am changed. I have a changed heart. That old Lloyd-Jones that you knew who was a doctor is no longer, but the old feeble man in front of you with a fresh new heart is here. So how did Nehemiah do this? How can we do this? We have to be all in. All in, but with the identity that Christ has given us. And again, he said, only half of my men worked while we carried the shields. And one, as we close, look at verse 19 and 20. Look at what he says. Then I explained to the nobles and the officials and all of the people, the work is very spread out and we are widely separated from each other along the wall when you hear the blast of the trumpet rush to wherever it is sounding then our god will fight for us call upon other people blow your horn during the week not just on sunday or wednesday or whenever you get together blow your horn ask for help come and pray come and ask for prayer come and ask to be anointed with the oil Don't sit there on your portion of the wall that the Lord has called you to do to build and do it on your own. So pray, apply your whole heart. We'll close with this. This is where it gets tricky, I guess, for theologians and pastors and for Christians is the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How is it that God is completely in charge and why What I do matters. Some go through this and read, well, if they really believed in God, then they wouldn't have brought weapons. Isn't God sovereign? Or on the opposite side, since they brought their weapons, do they even believe in God? And that whole argument that goes back and forth, how is God sovereign and what is our responsibility and why what we do matters? If you remember when we were going through Acts, Acts 27, you remember when Paul's in the ship and the big storm is coming up and down and everything is breaking away and the Lord speaks to him and says, everyone on the ship will be saved. And he shares that. And then, if you remember, later on, halfway through Acts 27, there were some men who were trying to sneak the little boat off. And he said, hey, guard, stop those guys. Because if they get off, they're dead. Well, I thought you said everyone is going to to survive. Yes, if you do, God's will. So as we are praying... And as we are applying our whole heart into the ministry that God has called us to, and as we blow our trumpet when we need help, we need to understand that what we do matters, and you matter. We all have gifts and abilities and talents, and we cannot sit on the sideline, as I mentioned before. God is sovereign. He will accomplish his will. He wants you in the game. So practically speaking, just consider which one of these attacks or others they get you down? What is it that you've been doing in your own strength that you promised that you wouldn't? And have you prayed about it? Have you blew your horn about it? And then when you recovered, have you applied your whole heart or have you proceeded with caution because you don't trust? And ultimately, God wins. Let's pray. God, thank you for this time and we need you and we love you, Lord. And and. Um, we thank you that you love us enough not to set us on cruise control. Uh, You love us enough that uh, through these trials and difficult seasons that we face, that that is a way for you to redefine us, mold us into who you want us to be so that way we can continue to grow in our dependence upon you. Forgive us as... We act like little, my nephews and nieces who jump in the wave and think we can do it. We don't need you to hold our hand, but yet we need you to carry us. So Lord, wherever we're attacked, will you help us identify it if we haven't done so already and let us not be defeated? Pray for anyone in here who is working through the 50% that, ah, what's the point? Will you give them a renewed spirit? And Lord, for each and every one of us, will you let us go back down to the basement where you won the fight for our heart through your son, where we can go back and say, grace won, beat out the sin. Lord, help us be re- reminded that our identity is in you, in you alone, and not in our performance, yet we want to do well. So as we do carry our shields and our swords and our spears, Lord, will you not allow foxes, little things to come into our lives? Let us deal with it right away. And Lord... Let us be bold enough to blow our trumpet in time of need. We thank you and we're excited to continue to worship you through more song. We love you in Christ's name, amen.